Good evening. Good evening. It's good to see everybody this evening. It's a pleasure to speak to you. If you're visiting with us, I hope you feel welcomed. I hasten to tell you that I am not one of the evangelists who normally speak here, but we are continuing our lectureship that we have been continuing for this year, where various men of the congregation are given topics to preach about, and all these topics point to a theme, which you see on the banners beside me, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Those in Revelation 14, uh, the redeemed, the, the pure, they follow Jesus wherever he goes, and we want to be numbered with them and follow Christ wherever he goes. My topic is to follow Jesus from the tomb. So we're talking tonight about the resurrection. I don't think there's anything more important we could talk about. I don't think there's anything more important because everything we believe as Christians, everything we profess are rooted in the resurrection. In fact, you can back up and say everything Jesus professed, all the promises Jesus made are in the resurrection, are rooted in the resurrection. It is really the cornerstone to our faith, to the Christian faith, and it is also what makes Christianity very unique. I don't know of another world religion, I don't know all of them, but I don't know of one where God the Creator who created heaven and the earth, created man, then sent his son to become one of those men, who then lived a very lowly life. Now, I, am, I, I can think of some mythological stories where heavenly beings descend to the earth, mythological stories, and once they're on, they're on some mission that's usually very self-seeking, and they're not living lowly lives. They're, they're still a god completely. I, this is not a mythological story. It doesn't even read like mythology, if you've ever read mythology, though some people would tell you that. It doesn't read that way at all. Christ lived a lowly life, and he died a horrible death. But he said he would raise, he would raise again in three days, and that he did, and he ascended into heaven. That is very unique. And yet it is the story that many unbelievers simply will refuse to believe. There are people I know, perhaps you know, that believe there was a man named Jesus and they believe he had good philosophy and he taught good things, but miracles they just simply won't accept, especially the resurrection. And young people, I was thinking about you as I prepared this lesson, young adults, because as I was thinking, and it's a bit of a sidebar, I suppose, it doesn't really graft in that well, but I was thinking about you, maybe because I'm, I'm working with folks your age so much, and I was thinking about the conversations I had in college, especially with people who were unbelievers, and some of the really tough questions they can ask. And maybe we'll have a chance to address that, because I think the resurrection 
I wish I had known then, but I think the resurrection is very much a part of the answer to a lot of difficult questions people will ask you who are not believers. We live in a day and age of science. You are studying science, most of you, where things are supposed to be observable, testable, they're supposed to be uh, repeatable, and what's the other one? Fossible? <laughs> to be able to be proven true or false. And what do we do with that? That's a science approach, a, a natural, a, they call themselves naturalist sometimes. They want to observe things. They want to see repeatable things. And they cannot believe the resurrection because, they'll tell you, it violates the laws of nature. The laws of nature. I heard someone talking about the laws of nature the other day. I thought they had a very good point. These laws of nature. Now, I'm going to say first myself that if there's a law of nature, doesn't that imply there's a law giver? I've never known of a law that wasn't given, that there wasn't an intelligent being giving that law, maybe sometimes less than intelligent beings, we might think. But laws are given by intelligent beings. But if we go along and they say, well, but we observe these things in nature, nature is the lawgiver, nature is the one, we observe all of these things, they aren't laws, they're just descriptions. They just are descriptions about nature. They tell us how nature works. But it's a carefully worded thing, the laws of nature. You're violating the law if you believe in the resurrection. That's not natural. You're not natural. If you believe in that, you must have opened up your head and removed your brain and filled it full of idle tales, filled it full of nonsense, if you believe in the resurrection. I wonder how you're going to approach those people when they say something to you like that. It might be a friend, it might be a professor. It might be uh, just an acquaintance, someone you work with. But questions, there are other questions we might have time to talk about if I hurry. What are we gonna do with the unbeliever? Can they be reached with the scriptures? Can someone like that, can you talk to them about the scriptures? I like the lessons we've been having on evangelism where Brother Hutto and Brother Merkel have mentioned, talk to them about Jesus. Just talk to them about Jesus. You don't have to construct a, a really amazing lesson to talk to your friends. Just talk to them about Jesus. The resurrection might be part of that. Well, I'll tell you one thing that might surprise them is we can number those unbelievers that don't believe in the resurrection with the apostles. Chuck, maybe you've lost your mind, finally. You're gonna number the unbeliever with the apostles. Now, the unbeliever says, don't do that. Those apostles, no, I'm not like that. They actually preached this stuff. They, they went about and, 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 and told this story everywhere they went and tried to convert people with this. And some of them even gave their life in the process, apparently of preaching the gospel. Don't number me with them. Well, I can't help it. Look at Luke chapter 24. If you would, Luke chapter 24. 
And let's read a little bit in Luke chapter 24. I find this a very captivating chapter. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men by peril. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day arise. And they remembered his words. And running from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tell, and they did not believe them. Well, doesn't that sound exactly like what we're talking about? An unbeliever? An idle tell? You know, in this day and age, women were not um, allowed to testify about something. For instance, a court case, they were not allowed to testify. They were seen as perhaps given to idle tales. Yet isn't it interesting that the Lord appeared to the women first in this case? Yeah, and, and so here we go. They were accused, well, they weren't believable. These guys were unbelievers. But let's go on. Let's read, let's read more. Let's not stop there. But Peter, and if we read John's account, John went with him, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And then, of course, he went about preaching the gospel, didn't he? No, I think he did exactly what you and I would do. He went home, marveling at what had happened. And you read in other accounts, they saw the, the linen there. They saw the linen cloth that had been laid over the Lord's face, folded up neatly, laying there. There was no robbery. This was, this was not a scene of a crime. They marveled at what they saw. Going on, verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. 
They went at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back and said that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Well, we can stop there. How about that? Just as the women had said. But he, him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we discover later that their eyes are opened and they do see that he is indeed Jesus Christ and that he and they go back to the apostles and tell them and other accounts we read, they, they still didn't believe them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus joined these people from Emmaus and he didn't just reveal himself to them? I mean, why didn't he just throw off his cloak? As well? I don't know how that was they didn't recognize him and just say, here I am. I'm here. I've risen from the dead. I'm standing right here with you. Look at me. He didn't do that. How did he reveal himself to them? He opened the scriptures and taught them from the prophets and Moses and explained everything to them from the Could you do that? Could you, could you go to the Old Testament, which is what he would have had? Those are the scriptures. Those are the prophets. That's Moses. And explain someone and reveal Christ to them from those scriptures? We had a class recently on the, covenant, on the covenants, and we talked about that, how we need to be able to see Christ in the Old Testament. It won't seem so old to us if we see Christ in the Old Testament scriptures. It's interesting that that's how he revealed. He used the scriptures. So can unbelievers be taught with the scriptures? I believe so. I believe they can be reached. Speaking of the things that happened in Jerusalem, we go back to the beginning of the chapter and we see these, the women early in the morning walking with these spices they had prepared. They weren't thinking about the resurrection. I don't think the resurrection was even on their minds. They were going to go see a body. They were going to go help prepare the body. Maybe they didn't know Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had already done that. But they were going to go do that I don't think that that's what they were expecting at all. And we read down about how they were not believed and all these disciples were together in one place. And we read about those on the road to Emmaus, how they stood still and were sad. They were sad, these people. They were in, surely in, Despair. I mean, this is a worst-case scenario. Everything had gone wrong. They, they had put all the... Well, let's say it this way. Everything Jesus professed, all those promises were in the tomb, in their perspective. Imagine what they had seen. The man that they thought was, as they said, the one that would redeem Israel, the king of kings. He was going to be that. 
and he was going to relieve their suffering, and he was going to save them. But now they are lost without Jesus. Lost without Jesus. They no doubt were scared. Those people that put Jesus to death were still there. Remember what happened when Peter was identified as one of his followers? He denied him three times, basically while Jesus watched. Oh, Jesus, Jesus was suffering, and they abandoned him. They saw him beaten and scourged, spat upon, and crucified, and he never said a word. This man was supposed to be the victory for us. And he never, not a word. What are, we, what are we to do now? They must have been completely confused, distressed, disoriented. Everything I taught, everything he promised. What happened? Well, it's interesting. Because then I go to Acts chapter 2. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 2. And we'll jump to verse 22. Get right to the business of it. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. This is about 50 days later. This is on the Pentecost. And notice the difference. Peter speaking. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What has changed? It's the resurrection. It's no doubt some of these people that were hearing this had heard and perhaps even participated in the yelling, crucifying, crucifying. And now they're hearing this message from these men that were just a few weeks ago cowering, hiding, discouraged, depressed. Something happened. What changed in these 50-ish Moreover than that, 3,000 people believed them and obeyed the gospel. That grew to 5,000 shortly thereafter. What happened? The resurrection happened. Christ defeated death. If you ever needed a reason to become a Christian, Christ defeated death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 14, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. That's a very good reason to become a Christian. Because God raised the Lord and he's going to raise us up also by his power. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Why, young people, do you worship God? You might be asked that by some of those unbelievers, if you haven't already. I know I have. Because there's going to be a resurrection. Do I want to be a part of that? I do. And I understand the need for baptism. There are people that will argue with you about baptism not being necessary. Why would you not want to be identified with this incredible event of death, burial, and resurrection? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? If you haven't been baptized, you haven't been baptized into his death. There's been a resurrection. I really want this to work. I have to press the right button. All the little arrows have been erased, so you have to feel around you find them. Now, we're not going to look at all these scriptures, but these are scriptures of Christ's appearances after he rose from the dead. Quite a lot of them. Quite a lot of witnesses, too. We don't have time to look at all of them. But not only that, if we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll find the Apostle Paul writes to, he's writing to people who don't believe in a resurrection. They believe in Christ, but they don't believe in a resurrection. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, he said, For I delivered to you as a first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. What is Paul's point? That Jesus did rise from the death, and it wasn't just him saying so. It wasn't just the apostles saying so. In fact, he can tell you about 500 witnesses that would confirm the same thing. And I'll say this to the unbeliever. You can also search out secular sources uninspired historians, Jewish historians, Roman historians, who wrote about the events surrounding the crucifixion, and about those who were under threat of life and death, who testified to the resurrection and worshiped him when literally being fed to the lions. What would cause such a conviction? What would cause such a thing? Only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something else I found interesting about what was spoken on the day of Pentecost and subsequent days, by the way, the apostles before the Sanhedrin, 
Their message obviously was very persuasive. They had a lot of converts, didn't they? But it wasn't because they were amazing literary men, eloquent speakers. They simply said what happened. Young people, how do you talk to an unbeliever? Simply say what happened. Just say what happened. They simply spoke the truth. The Word of God will not come back void. If you send it out, it will have an effect of some sort. What is so important about the resurrection? Maybe the unbeliever, okay, okay, there was a man named Jesus. You say he was risen from the dead. What's so important about that? Well, as these apostles over the coming years are going to reveal, it becomes more and more clear why the resurrection is so very important. First, it verifies and validates everything claimed and promised by Jesus. And Jesus said some extraordinary things. And it does so by no less than the power of God. He said he was the Son of God. In John 10, verses 28 through 30, Jesus claimed... Jesus claimed, I give them eternal life. That's an extraordinary thing to say. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one who is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed authority. He claimed to be the Son of God, and he claimed he could give us eternal life. In Romans 1, verse 4, Paul is writing that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, the Son of God. How can he say that? because he was raised from the dead and he was seen by all these witnesses. He was seen by all these people. It fulfills numerous prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Son of God. In Peter's sermon, we didn't read this part, but he goes on to quote from Psalm 16. And verse 10 specifically comes to mind because it says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. The resurrection kept Christ from seeing decay, seeing corruption. And in this prophetic psalm, it shows that He is holy. Your Holy One will not see corruption. He's set apart. He is indeed the Son of God. Also Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The resurrection confirms he was who he said he was. And therefore the Son of God, spoken of in prophecies since when? Since the Garden of Eden. 
That's how far these prophecies go back. In John 14, verses 6 through 10, Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He further claimed, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen me. Did he have the authority to make this claim? After the resurrection in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You see, there's always these doubters. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Yes, he had the authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He had the authority to claim these things and to give a great commission. In other accounts, he did rebuke the unbelievers for not believing the women and the couple when they returned from Emmaus, the road to Emmaus. And you'll notice, I don't believe Thomas is there yet. I believe the event with Thomas happens next. So there were doubters, there were unbelievers. This power, we, we, we've mentioned several times about power, spoken of in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 for instance, we just talked about, it emanates from God and the resurrection confirms the power, Romans 1 and verse 4, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we read, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14, God will also raise him, us up by his power. How do we know he will do that? What's our assurance? Why do we have faith in that? Because it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's Jesus that was raised from the dead and seen by all these witnesses and testified by men who touched him and handled him and heard him and looked into his eyes. First John will talk about that. God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. First Corinthians 6.14 Jesus said he'd raise again on the third day. These are scriptures that are his claims that that would be the case. And he did so, as was witnessed. And importantly, it proves what he said that he came here to save us. Why is the resurrection so important? Because it's the power of salvation is demonstrated in it. Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Did he have the authority to make such a claim? Does he have the power to do it? The resurrection proves he indeed has the authority and the power. Finally, in John 3, 16 through 18, a familiar passage in here, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God. That very familiar scripture, John 3.16, reminds us of why Christ came in the first place. We're running out of time. There's so many directions you can go with the resurrection. This is an incredibly huge topic. I wanted to show that it was the power that proved Christ. All his promises are true and that we can have faith assurance in that. But I couldn't stop thinking about conversations I've had in the past with people and heard somebody lecturing about the resurrection a little bit and power behind it and thought about the question I always find very difficult. And I, I, well, I think about the topics we've had just most recently about following Christ into the garden, following Christ the upper room, following Christ onto the cross, and Brother Lord taught that lesson, told us a lot about the suffering that Christ went through, all that suffering. Why, they may ask you, is all that suffering why would you worship a God that allows suffering? All that suffering. Our brother this morning, Brother Merkel, was talking about it. We talked about it a moment ago on the, on the uh, Lord's table. The suffering. Why all this suffering? Why would you worship a God that allows that suffering? And we could come up with lessons, I'm sure, about how evil entered the world we could talk about free choice, free will, how that has brought suffering. But we might say that I don't sure I can satisfy you with an answer, but I know this much, that my God, my Lord and Savior, did not remove himself from that suffering. We have suffering here. We have people here that greet me with a smile every time I come in and ask me, how am I doing? And I just want to yell out, how am I doing? How are you doing? How are you even standing? We have people here who are suffering illness. We have people suffering from medical procedures, people that have lost loved ones in terrible loneliness. We have people that have lost loved ones through horrible tragedies. I told my wife the other day, I said, when I pray, and, I, I, and sometimes I, I try to think about every, you know, kind of hover over, like I'm standing here now, the congregation, think about each pew, and I can't find a pew where someone's sitting that there isn't suffering. I'm not kidding you. You do that if you're not already doing that, or go through the directory. There are so much, we have people suffering, taking care of their loved ones, more people in this room doing that than I have ever seen before. And that is so stressful. Suffering. Why? Well, I may not know all those answers, but I know this. My God and my Savior did not remove himself from suffering, but became part of it. Submitted himself to it. Well, what's important about that? Well, there's the obvious 
that he can associate with our suffering, but the resurrection. What does it give us but hope? It is the end to all of that. In the resurrection, there is no suffering. There is only great joy. That's why the resurrection is so important. That's how the resurrection can help answer that question, why do I worship a God, of any, however they want to phrase it, because of the resurrection. It ends all suffering. And it gives us great hope. I wish we had more time to develop that. I guess that might be another lesson. A lesson on hope, that would be great. I don't know why God made his wondrous grace known to me, unworthy, yet Christ in love. We sing about that, don't we? Why did my Savior come to earth and to the humble go? Why did he choose a lowly birth? Why did he on the cross? Why did he hang on the cross? Because he loves me. He loves me so. And he loves you. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? I ask you, if you have not been baptized, if you have not obeyed the gospel, please consider. If, if your friends are agnostic or atheist, which an agnostic likes to draw the difference, but they're really, they're not in any better shape. The atheist, their life is so brief and so dark. There's no God that created it. There's no God in it. And there's no God after it. They've got their allotted time and then it is darkness. There's nothing there. Why? No, that's not attractive to me at all. Especially when I see the evidence. I wish we had more time to, con to talk about the evidence of everything in the Bible Young people, and back to you again. We are to love the Lord our God, how? With all our mind, with all, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. I challenge you to use that same mind that you study science and calculus and, and chemistry and turn that same sharpened mind and intellect, intelligence to the Bible and see if it ever disappoints you. You know, people say, well, you just keep going back to that book for your answers. Well, that's circular reasoning. There's nothing there, but they err not knowing the scriptures, and we err not calling on that. This is not just a book. Well, you're going to tell me it's the Word of God. Yes, I'll tell you that, but it's not just that. How many books is this? 66. Books and letters, documents by more than 35 writers, some of whom were eyewitnesses many of whom were in the presence of Jesus Christ. I'm a teacher, and I'm telling you, if your teacher wants you to do a research paper, and you show, and they say, we want that bibliography, you know, they just want that first. Give me that bibliography. And you've got 66 books written by 35 plus authors, many of whom were eyewitnesses who handled the person you're, who, they're gonna say, that's great. That is great research. Only the Bible gets persecuted like that. Oh, no, 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 that, that's nothing. I mean, that's, that's just circular. No, it's, just because it's circular reasoning, if you think that, doesn't mean it's wrong. I can prove otherwise. 
I hope that the story of the resurrection tempts you to become a Christian so much that you can't stand not being a Christian. The rewards, the promises made by Christ, every one of them fulfilled. And he has the power to save. He's demonstrated that. If you have obeyed the gospel, but somehow forgotten that and have sinned, and if for any reason you need the prayers of the congregation in that regard, whatever the case may be, turn away, repent. We're going to be resurrected. We're going to have the victory that Christ demonstrated. Let's not miss it. Think about these things as we stand now and see.